Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So our our working text for the Footsteps of Messiah has primarily been from the Song of Songs. And as we've worked through the chapters of the Song of Songs, now that we're into the fourth chapter of the prophecy, um, and by the way, as we're approaching Passover, as we approach Pesach, we realize that this, the Song of Songs is the, the traditional reading that is done during the week of Pesach. Uh, the prophecies in the Song of Songs pertain uh, very particularly to the Feast of Passover. Uh, not that it doesn't pertain to the other feasts as well, it does, but uh, there is a particular association between the Song of Songs and the celebration of Passover and Unleavened Bread. So as we get closer to that date, uh, which is it's going to be here very soon, what is it, April 5th, I believe? It's getting here very soon, so we do. We want to pay special attention to the the prophecies as we're studying them in the Song of Songs and saying, okay, this is the footsteps of Messiah that I'm reading about, and I have to take this as the footsteps of Messiah and my generation, whether it's you know that final generation or not, it's the footsteps of Messiah and my generation, and I have to pay attention to the signs. And we see that a lot of the things that the rabbis associated with the Song of Songs in terms of trouble, we can just, you know, it depends on whether you open up a newspaper, I don't even know if they print those anymore, uh, or whether you look at your news online or, or whether you watch a news program, you can look at the news of the day and see that it's very consistent with the prophecies that they saw embedded into the Song of Songs. So we want to pay attention. We want to be prepared. We want to look at this Passover as if it were just as important. Remember, you have to tell the story of Passover as if you came out of Egypt yourself. That's the commandment. You have to say, this is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt, as you tell it to the children during Passover. And so if you're going to tell it that way, then I believe you must feel a sense of urgency I don't know how you can tell that as if you came out of Egypt, if you don't feel a a sense of maybe disquiet, expectation, anticipation, maybe a little anxiety, because you know it's going to be a rough night for the Egyptians. Even if it doesn't turn out to be a rough night for you, it's going to be a very rough night for the rest of the world. And so we want to approach every Passover as if when we tell this story, our concern is, did I follow the commandment? Did I take the lamb? Did I apply the blood to the doorpost? Did I eat the lamb? I don't have a lot of commandments here. There's there's not a lot of commandments they were given relative to that first Passover. They, they're a little more intensive once they uh, go into the land. But that first Passover out there in Egypt, which remember is called um, the wilderness of Egypt, the wilderness of the peoples. It's where we are right now. We're in the wilderness of the peoples, the wilderness of Egypt. So we have to tell this Passover story, not as if we, you know, ourselves were in Egypt, because we are in Egypt. It's if, if we understand the symbolism of it, we are in Egypt. There's no doubt. And so think of it as, as you approach this Passover, if you have a firstborn son, or let's say you have a, you know, maybe you have uh, multiple firstborn grandsons. What if, what if the same thing were happening this year? 
What if you didn't obey just a few simple commandments that Moses gave you? Would you take Passover as lightly if you thought your firstborn son or any of your firstborn grandsons, grandchildren, or even great-grandchildren? What if you thought they were in jeopardy of being taken by the death angel? What if, what if, we're not saying what is, we're saying what if, what if this Passover, if you didn't celebrate the Passover as you were commanded, then you placed your firstborn son's life, his very life in jeopardy, especially if he's young and he's depending upon you to obey the commandment. Well, then it gets really heavy from there, doesn't it? Right. So that uh, that's the approach. That's the mindset we need to have. We need to be very sober-minded about Passover in the same way that it can be very fun for the kids as we're going through the plagues and, and you know, reenacting some things. There's all sort of creative things we can do to pull them into it. Uh, something that Persian Jews do at the Passover Seder is uh, they'll get handfuls of scallions, the, the long green onions, and, you know, they'll, they'll run around the Seder table smacking one another with the green scallions, which, of course, it doesn't hurt, but it's, it's number one, it's fun for the kids. But number two, it, it, it's a visual way of, you know, and also an acting out way that they can see, like, what would have been like to be whipped by an Egyptian taskmaster? It wouldn't have been that fun, would it? And onions can be very bitter, too. But in all the fun, you know, I don't know whether you chase one another around with green onions and smack one another to, to act out being, you know, smacked around by an Egyptian taskmaster. But whatever you do, you know, that draws the children into it from your end of things as the parent or the grandparent, you really need to be sober minded and say, I want to keep this feast with all my, my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, because the spiritual life of my children, and especially my firstborn. See, the firstborn puts a face to it. Rather than saying our children in general, which is true, we don't want to neglect their spiritual life. But for your firstborn, if you looked at the face of that child, or if you can think of the face of that child right now, no matter what his age is, no matter what his age is, he might be 60, no matter what his age is. What if you just rebelled and disobeyed the commandment, didn't keep the Passover, and he died? Wow. So again, we have to balance out the joy of our salvation, the joy of our redemption, the joy of our rescue, and say, that doesn't give us permission to be frivolous about it. Paul taught the Corinthians the, the consequences of being frivolous about Passover. It's an important, serious, spiritually significant milestone each year. And he says, because you're you're entering into it frivolously, that's why many of you are sick and you're even dying. You're even dying. And, you know, I'm not trying to scare you right there, but clearly Paul was trying to scare the Corinthians. What, whatever was going on in that congregation, which apparently there was a little too much drinking and partying and then not taking care of the poor. Everybody in your community should be able to celebrate the Passover. And so that's why uh, when you registered for a lamb and during temple times, the understanding is that that lamb would stand in and supply. You really only had to eat about an olive's size worth of the lamb for it to be, you know, a fulfillment. You didn't have to eat the whole lamb yourself. I mean, just not your single family. You didn't have to eat the whole lamb. But about 50 people would register to divide up one lamb. And so the the, the Seder meal, the the main course, was not considered to be the lamb, but it was partaking, taking your portion from that lamb. 
And so if you take one lamb and you feed 50 people, you can see kind of how small the portions were. So it's it's not really about the meal. It's about being part of a community. And if you're part of a community, there shouldn't be one person in that community who is not enjoying celebrating uh, the Passover to the extent they can approach it with all seriousness as well. It's, it's not a time to show off, you know, that you can afford the most expensive wine for the Passover Seder, that you can afford, you know, the most expensive cuts of meat for the meal. That's not what it's about. It's about making sure, at least at Passover, that everybody in that, that community, everybody who joins in that one lamb is equally provided for. And Paul is teaching that lesson to the Corinthians because they, they have failed to pick that up in his previous <laughs> instructions, apparently. You never know when you're teaching people about stuff, what critical things that they just didn't pick up, or you think maybe they should have known that, and they didn't. If you don't spell things out for some people, they don't know. And so that's why, you know, we, uh, we have that fellowship of a community so that where there's gaps in our understanding, there might be somebody there who can help clear that up for us so that we can proceed not just with joy, but joy with with a healthy dose of sobriety, if that makes sense. And, and, and not just in the you know, fact of drinking wine at Passover, but whether you use juice or whether you use real wine, if you're using real wine, I hope you're being really careful because after four cups, <laughs> you, you might be in the condition Paul was talking about. You might want to mix it in there with some grape juice or just use grape juice. There's nothing wrong with just using grape juice if it keeps that degree of sobriety so that you don't forget the person who either is sitting next to you and not enjoying as much or the person who should be sitting next to you enjoying that meal just as much because they, they share in the salvation, they share in the lamb, right? So that really wasn't what I wanted to talk about today. I do want to talk about the lamb. I want to talk about Yeshua. I don't know if I'll use PowerPoints today or not. Probably not. Um, maybe next week. But, you know, since it's been a week or two since we were together and, and since we're kind of coming back from the, the footsteps to the coffin study, getting back on the main trail with the footsteps of Messiah, I'd like to review this idea of the clouds, right? And and why the, the idea of the clouds, again, it's going to go back to our working text, our working text. All right. And so, Let's just review the working text, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's Song of Songs, 4, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll go back and we'll pick up some things. We've already done a lot of work um, with the first couple of verses here, the first two or three verses, and we'll continue. But let's just read those five verses for good context right now. It says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Right. So like I said, back in the, the early chapters of the song, we did unpack a lot of the symbolism of these things we just read. Uh, but now as we're in chapter four, we're looking at the same symbols like the dove's eyes, 
you know, the two breasts, like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, representing the two tablets of the Torah, the pomegranate representing the the commandments and so forth. So it's a lot easier to go deeper. Once you've got the basic symbolism of things, then you can dive a little deeper. So chapter four gives us an opportunity here to dive a little deeper. For instance, based on the symbolism that we learned in the first couple chapters, we know that in chapter four, now that we know who the darling is, we know this is Israel. There's no question that this is Israel. In fact, if you compare this little section, you know, where it says, uh, your eyes are like doves behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad, uh, your lips are like a scarlet thread, your mouth is beautiful. Well, if you read the Torah portion this week, then you read in the building of the tabernacle something very similar to this, the, the hair like a flock of goats. That descended from Mount Gilad. And if you remember, when we, we looked at Mount Gilad before, we saw that there was a parallel there with Mount Sinai, because Gilad, it can be pronounced Galed, which means this rolling or continuous mountain of witness aid, which Gal, uh, like Gilad, Gal means to go round and round, like a tire today is Galgal in Hebrew. It goes round and round. And so it's a rolling, continuous thing. It just keeps rolling around. And then ad means eternity. Aid means witness. They're, they're, they have the same essence because if it's a true witness, then it's forever. It's forever true. And so Mount Gilad was seen as a play on words with Mount Sinai, which was the mountain of witness, where they witnessed the presence of Adonai, where they bore witness to the covenant. And so he says, your hair is like a flock of goats. What we know is there, we've had a lot of things happen at Mount Sinai that shouldn't have happened. But in order to bring that presence back in, and Moses, remember, he's like, we can't go forward if you don't go with us. And Adam's not like, I don't want to go with you. I don't want to go with you anymore. You had a golden calf. Go with your golden calf. And Moses is like, we're not going anywhere without you. And so what he does is he gives Moses the instructions for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle. And he says, okay, build this tabernacle. and." It will make it possible for me to dwell with you, to dwell among you, because he can focus his presence in this particularly holy place within the camp. And you say, well, if he dwells among the people and his presence was there, his spirit was there, then then why was it so concentrated in the Mishkan? Well, the I heard a good analogy one time, and I forget which rabbi told it. He said, think of the ocean, think of the sea. And we've all seen, you know, movies or or documentaries where you might see a cave on a shoreline and how as the waves come in, they'll just rush. And as they're constricted going into this smaller space, that the power of that water going into that cave is enormous. And it just, it carves things out because of the power of the water, because it's more concentrated. And so there's power out there in the ocean for sure. But once it's kind of channeled into this small space, then the power of it is much more manifest and majestic if you're close enough to witness it. And they say, this is what the Mishkan, this is what the tabernacle was like, that even though his presence is so enormous and it cannot be contained, he says, where is the house you're going to build for me? You can't build anything that's going to contain me. But is it a place a prepared place of holiness where that presence can go in there in a concentrated way. 
and they can sense the power of it in a way that's not possible when it's more spread out. Even though it's the same power, focusing it in this one place makes it much more remarkable because the glory is much more concentrated. And so you saw that this week in the Torah portion. It was going to be an Exodus, what was that? It's Exodus 35, 25 through 26. And it, it's talking about the building of the Mishkan and the tabernacle. It says, all of the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. All right, they spun the goat's hair. Well, what was said of Israel? That she was as beautiful as goat's hair as they descended from the Mount of Witness. Uh, what does that mean? That they've received the covenant and they're descending from that mountain and they're getting to go back into the, the regular world with that witness, with that testimony of Mount Gilad, the Mount of Witness. They're coming from Mount Sinai with the commandments. And so their hair is especially beautiful. And so the women are spinning this goat's hair. It's as though they're taking this, this manifest glory that they had encountered in receiving the commandments, and they're spinning it into the very fabric of the tabernacle. And, and that gives context to our Song of Songs. And then it also says they were working in scarlet and fine linen. Well, this is what our, our passage said. Your lips are like scarlet. The scarlet material, scarlet, it has two sides to it. It's a contronym. Remember, a contronym is a word that, that can have opposite meanings held within itself. And so scarlet in the negative sense can represent sin and spiritual adultery. But on the positive side, scarlet can represent redemption and protection against judgment. And so what are these women doing? They are spinning this material for the Mishkan, for the children of Israel, so that they can maintain the presence of Adonai, that, that they will not have fear of the judgment that's associated with this scarlet material. Because the scarlet material, it, it comes from Proverbs 31, is where that's coming from, where it, which is a parable of the Holy Spirit. And it says that the virtuous woman, she her household has no fear of the snow, which uh, I believe it's Job tells us that it's it's held in the, the storehouses of heaven against the day of judgment. So snow is seen as the judgment. It's symbolic of the judgment. But the Proverbs 31 woman, this parable of the Holy Spirit, it says, her household has no fear of the snow. They have no fear of the judgment. It says, because they're all clothed in scarlet. So this is what the virtuous woman does. This is what the Holy Spirit does. When she takes the word, Remember, her lips are like scarlet. She's speaking the word over her family. And in speaking the word over her family, she's supplying them with scarlet garments that will protect them against the day of judgment. And, and what is this scarlet garment? It's going to be the word itself. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. It's to bring the word, the written word, alive to you so that you can put it on as garments. You know, and that's always the question. You know, Adam and Eve were naked and they knew it not. Well, to be naked is basically to be without the commandments. And if you don't know it, that's one thing. But if you do know it, if you rebel, then that, that activates 
some some additional problems with judgment, right? It's not a matter of needing to be instructed. It's a matter of I'm naked because I choose to be naked of the commandments. I'm naked because I choose to be naked of Yeshua's righteousness. Because he said, if I go, I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Ruach HaKodesh. And the Ruach HaKodesh is going to teach you how to put my clothes on. See, these, these robes of righteousness, they're not our clothes, they're Yeshua's, but it's the spirit that teaches us how to put them on. So he says, I'm going to go away because you need to be instructed on how to walk in this so that you will have no fear of judgment. And then it says, and fine linen. Well, if you remember when we took our little detour into the alabaster women, that the same word for fine linen or sheish was the Hebrew word for alabaster, which is, it forms the pavement of the temple. Right. So it's it's where the the natural world meets the spiritual world. So again, if you're paying attention, if you're keeping a journal or a notebook of symbols that you're learning with this series, if you just keep that at hand, then as you go through the Torah portion readings each week, you're, you're going to run into stuff like this. And you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I know what the scarlet material is all about. Hey, wait, I know what fine linen is all about. Hey, wait, I know what the goat's hair is all about. And it, it'll just keep building your context, which is which is what you have to do. You have to build it little by little. Okay. So now we're, we're going to back up a little bit again, right? Because I want to talk about the clouds of glory as it pertains again to the Mishkan. The, the understanding was that... The clouds of glory that, and not just the pillar of cloud, by the way, yes, that too, the pillar of cloud, but the clouds of glory that we've talked about, the the children of Israel, they had, you know, the clouds were like their shade at their right hand. They were under their feet to protect them from scorpions and snakes. They It was over their heads to shield them from the sun or the moon that might harm them by night. In other words, it was a place of concealment from the elements of judgment that were out there in the earth, whether it's natural snakes and scorpions or whether it's spiritual snakes and scorpions, whether it's, you know, the, the natural intense heat of the desert or whether it's the, the natural intense heat of, of just living in exile from the land, not being restored and resurrected yet. The enemies, you know, the shade at your right hand, protecting you from the enemies like the Amalekites. And so the only time these clouds wouldn't offer them protection is when they rebelled, when they complained, when they rebelled. They didn't like the food. They didn't like the water. They didn't like the leadership. They, they seem to have an endless list of things that they could mess up with. And, you know, if, if you know you're out there in the wilderness and they knew that, in a very vivid way, it, it probably would have not been a bad idea to just wake up every morning and say, shut your mouth to yourself, right? <laughs> just tell yourself, look, find a mirror and say, shut your mouth. <laughs> you love Moses. You love Aaron. <laughs> you love the food. You love the water. You love everything about this place. And that way you would know, you know, it, it would give you a good guideline throughout the day, not to just say something by mistake, not to gossip by mistake, because when they complained, you know, it, it just, it seemed to grow. Once one person starts complaining, it's like everybody starts complaining. And then they lost the protection of the clouds. And then the serpents and the scorpions could bite them. And then the Amalekites could attack them. We That's how we open the door. That's how we open the door to judgment. That's how we take off our, our clothes, basically our scarlet clothes. Yeshua says the Holy Spirit will clothe you and it will protect you from these judgments, but you got to put the clothes on. 
And you can't keep taking your clothes off. You can't keep complaining. You can't keep griping. You can't keep gossiping. You can't keep rebelling. You can't continue being stingy. You have to obey. You can't keep looking back and saying, things were better back here where I was before you called me out. Uh, you can't be envious and and crave the things that you craved before he redeemed you from Egypt. He says, you have to get over this or, or you, you, you know, you're going to go naked for a while until you, you wise up and say, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to put my clothes back on. I don't like snakes. I don't like scorpions. I don't like Amalekites. I don't like birds coming out of my nose, <laughs> those sorts of things. Again, as we walk in the wilderness, the thing to remember is it's thought that these clouds, not just the pillar of cloud, but that these protective clouds actually were taken from the throne of glory above, and they were apportioned to the Israelites to protect them on their journey to the promised land. They were their, their divine escort. And so understanding that that these clouds came from from the throne of glory then i think it helps us a little bit to understand the role of the pillar of cloud as well right now this this pillar of cloud seems to have been a specific entity who is this entity is the question or or what is this entity i think as as we go through the scriptures you'll see that we're referring most likely to a pre-incarnate manifestation of Yeshua, possibly known as the angel of the presence, because we know that, that Yeshua repeatedly tells us that he had glory with the Father before he came to this earth. And, then, and as he prays, as he knows his days of ministry are drawing to a close in the, the Gospel of John, you know, he prays to the Father and says, I, I want that glory that I had with you at the beginning. And the clouds represent this glory. And so as we look at the pillar of cloud as, as sometimes leading, sometimes going behind them to protect them, doing whatever it needed to do to protect them, then it seems as if this is some manifestation of the glory of Elohim that has been taken directly from the, the vicinity of his throne. And I think that helps us to understand why Yeshua is saying, I, I had to put off this glory to come down here, but I, I I want this glory back that I had from the beginning. And so, I, you know, I think that's going to help us to, again, look at a, a couple of verses here, a couple of sections of verses. Where are we going with this? I think it's going to help us to understand grace, mercy. Uh, and you say, well, didn't I get enough of that in Sunday school? No, you didn't. Because they most likely didn't teach you about grace and mercy and Torah in Sunday school from the Exodus, from the Exodus. Where would you expect to learn the foundations of grace, mercy, and Torah? You would expect to learn it from the beginning, starting at the Torah, especially in the Exodus. So let's think of this. Let's see if we can frame this in. In Egypt, there's not a whole lot going on in terms of spiritual growth. Now, are they physically growing? Are the children, are the 12 tribes of Israel, they, they start out with 70 or 72, depends on which list you're looking at. About 70 people, they go down to Egypt and all of a sudden they, they have an explosion of growth in Egypt. And eventually, of course, they come to be made into slaves, captives, forced labor, but 
even out there in Egypt, even out there in the wilderness of the peoples, in the, the natural realm, they are exploding with numbers. At the same time they're exploding with physical numbers, they are descending spiritually. This is what the, you know, I think it's, is it Ezekiel that refers to it? Um, but, you know, as the rabbis looked at the sources, they say, well, it looks like Israel had descended so far spiritually in Egypt. They were like the next to last level. They couldn't have been salvaged had they fallen one more level uh, in sin in Egypt. And, you know, anytime we're running around feeling proud of ourselves because, <laughs> you know, we, we know Torah and all this and that, you know, what if he's looking at us and he's saying, you know what, you're at the next to last level before you're salvageable. Uh, it, it could humble us really fast because sometimes we only think we're doing well because we don't really comprehend what well is yet. But the Holy Spirit, Yeshua said, if I go, the Holy Spirit can come and it can help you in a way that the children of Israel didn't necessarily experience. And perhaps this is why they fell to such a, a low level in this idolatrous nation. So as they're growing in natural numbers, they're diminishing spiritually. But what's going to happen? Well, this tells you, number one, that when Adonai takes them out of Egypt, it's not going to be because of their righteousness. That's not going to be the reason. It's not going to be because they're keeping 613 commandments. It's not going to be because they're keeping 10 commandments. It's not even because they're keeping two commandments. That's why, not why he rescues them. He rescues them because he promised he would. He promised that he would remember the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He keeps his word. So right there, <clears throat> this doctrine of grace, it tells you that it's we're not saved because we're worth it intrinsically. We're saved because we're worth it to the Holy One. He values us that much. And so even in the middle of all this, remember our, our text says, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Well, this is really cool because even though Israel has descended to Egypt, as they come up from Egypt, they're not going to lose one person. You say, nobody? Well, remember there was this incident that is recorded where Pharaoh is instructing the midwives, you know, uh, what to do because he wants them throwing the Hebrew boys into the Nile. He wants them killing these Hebrew boys. And so the, the midwives tell Pharaoh, well, you know, Pharaoh, don't know what we can do about this, but these Israelite women, they're, they're just like wild animals. They just, we get the call. And before we get there, they've already given birth. They're not losing them. They didn't lose Moses. And so that's kind of a preview. But at the point that, that Moses is ready to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, remember, there's not a lot of commandments they've been given. They needed to, number one, listen to Moses' warning about the plagues. If, if they weren't listening to Moses, then they probably weren't going to be saved anyway. They, they just wouldn't have made it. <laughs> they wouldn't. You know, the death of the firstborn would have probably finished most families off, uh, especially considering how vigorous they were. The men were told to circumcise. They were told to slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and then eat the lamb. And then they were told to leave Egypt. And then they were told, follow this cloud. That's pretty much it. That's all that's going on. You know, that's at the most probably five commandments. We don't hear on there the big 10. Moses doesn't say you have to follow these big 10 to come out of Egypt. If you want to be saved, you, you must follow these 10. There'll, there'll be a test next week to see if you did it. He didn't say, okay, there's 613 commandments. 
They had even heard these 613 commandments yet. They haven't been to Mount Sinai. They haven't been to the wilderness. They haven't even heard the big two, love your neighbor and, and love Adonai. Because remember, the 10 hang on the two, and then the 603 hang on the 10. Well, they don't even get the two that everything else is hanging on. It's basically, okay, listen to what I'm telling you about the plagues. Circumcise, slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, eat it, come with me. That's it. That's all they had to do. These are steps of faith. They may not have been specific commandments, but they were guidelines of faith. And so they, these are going to be simple things to do. In fact, they're going to have a great reason for doing them. Having witnessed the 10 plagues, they're going to be very ready to follow Moses out of Egypt. I mean, you'd have to be silly not to. And apparently there were a lot of silly Egyptians that stayed behind. But these are very simple, demonstrated acts of faith. It's basically a question, do you want to live? Are you tired of this? Do you want to live? Then I'm going to give you some practical things to do before I even reveal my commandments to you. So you're not going to, you're going to, not going to get Shema Yisrael till you get to the wilderness. You're not going to get the Big Ten till you get to the wilderness. You're not going to get 613 till you get to the wilderness. And I will give them to you in the wilderness so that you'll be prepared to go up into the promised land. But for now, I want to rescue you. I want to save your life. And in order to save your life, I want you to just believe me and do these few things. And the idea here, if we go back to our text where it says, all of which bear twins, the sheep who come up from their washing. Well, the rabbis are going to compare the sheep coming up from their washing from the Israelites coming up from the Reed Sea as Pharaoh chases them into the Reed Sea, that they go through the Reed Sea as a kind of a mikvah, an immersion. And as they come up on the other side, they're not going to have lost one of the little lambs. They're not going to lose one of their children as they come up on the other side of the sea. Whereas Pharaoh, he's going to lose the entire army. And so not one of them is going to be lost. Not one of your children has to be lost. Because at that point, remember, your children, they haven't learned Shema Yisrael. They haven't learned the Big Ten. They haven't learned 613. They may not even know what really kosher eating is. They might have a vague idea, but they're not going to be ticking off a lot of boxes at that point. But what they need to be is like their father, Abraham. And where it says not one of them is lost. They're all bearing twins. Well, the word for twin is going to be ta'am, ta'am. And, and it means to be duplicated, to be twin, to be coupled together. And so it's kind of a play on word because that word is sometimes translated as perfect, perfect, and not perfect in the sense that, that we tend to take it, which means without fault, not without one blemish or fault. That's not what it means. It means to be a person of uprightness, a person of moral integrity, a person of moral integrity. And this was applied to Abraham in Genesis 17, 1. It says, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Blameless. Ta'am. Well, how can he be ta'am? He makes mistakes after that. And that's why we have to say being ta'am or tamim, which there again, it's there's a, a joining or a pairing there of tamim, like two, and because uh, it, it's in the plural, it makes you think of Abraham and Sarah. Is he talking to just Abram? 
Or is he talking to Avram and Sarai? Because they're both going to get a name change after this. Uh, so sometimes when it's talking to one in scripture, you read the context. He might be talking to a pair, just like he is right here with this ta'am, ta'amim. He's telling Abraham, walk in the righteousness you understand, and I'm going to give you credit for what you don't know. You just walk with me, and you're going to get credit. You're going to have righteousness put into your account that you haven't walked in yet because you haven't learned it yet. This is the same thing with the children of Israel. He says, okay, I haven't even revealed two, 10, or 613 to you yet. You do these few things. You be people with moral integrity. You leave the sinfulness. You leave the death of Egypt. And I'm going to go ahead and put credits in your individual accounts for righteousness, as if you knew the two, as if you knew the 10, as if you knew the 613. I'm going to go ahead and put that into your account. Just like Abraham, he Abraham never intended to quit walking. He says, walk before me, be blameless. So the children of Abraham, at this point, they're ready to come out of Egypt, and they're going to be counted like their father is upright. It didn't mean they didn't have any sin and they didn't make any mistakes. It meant they were going to walk and work on the revealed things each day. If what is revealed today is get ready for a plague of hail, that's what they're going to walk in today. If the revealed thing today is look out, here come the frogs, they're going to get ready for the frogs. If the commandment of the day is be prepared for three days of darkness, they're going to get ready for three days of darkness. They're not going to be on commandment number 507 today. They're going to be on three days of darkness because that's what's been revealed to them so far. And so where it says all of them are perfect, they're ta'an, they've come up from their washing. The, the point the rabbis are making here is there was a righteousness credited to them before they ever had an opportunity to practically walk in it. So the, the doctrines of grace and mercy are not new in the New Testament. They're based upon the foundations of what we're reading right here in Exodus. That yes, just like Abraham was credited for righteousness that he hadn't yet walked in, so those when we're saved, when the children of Israel, when, when we're called out of Egypt, when we're called out of sin and death, it doesn't mean that, that we won't continue to sin and make mistakes. We will. But he's going to go ahead and credit us if we don't know what sin is, if we haven't learned what those sins are yet, or even if we have a struggle, right? Sometimes your, your soul, there's going to be things that are of Egypt that are harder to leave behind. You may want to go back to the things you did in Egypt, but you know what? He'll let you die in the wilderness before he'll let you go back there, which is better. It's actually better to die in the wilderness with him than to go back to Egypt. So in spite of the fact that the Israelites, they are ta'am or tamim, they are walking in the uprightness they've learned so far. Nevertheless, they are sinful people. They're complaining people. They're still idolatrous people. In spite of that, they are herded and guarded by the presence of Adonai himself and this angel of his presence. They come up from the Reed Sea unharmed. And by all rights, it, they should be dead. Remember Nadav and Avihu got too close to the presence in a state of rebellion? They they subverted the authority of Aaron, their father, who hadn't yet had a chance to give the incense offering. They rush ahead of him. Apparently, they'd been drinking, and they're, they're just, the fire comes out on them, and it kills them. It burns them up. So yes, you can be burned up. You can be drowned. But 
until you learn better. And that's the thing, Nadav and Avihu, they knew better. They were not uninformed. Moses had, had taught them how to conduct the service. This is how the services go. And what do they do? The first thing they do is rush out there and do it wrong. There's consequences for that. Just like there was consequences for the golden calf. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, they rush right out there and do it wrong right off the bat. Okay, there's going to be consequences. 3,000 are going to fall. You're going to have some go down from a plague. You know, you're going to have some die by the sword. You're going to fall. Some are going to waste away when they drink the, the gold water. There's consequences for that. But he would rather you die in the wilderness than to go back to Egypt. And, and there's a difference there. Because the assumption is that out in the wilderness, I believe it's that you are in a learning process. You are learning as you go. And so, yeah, he's put the credits in your account. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences if, if you know, you make a, a biggie, but it doesn't mean you're not saved from Egypt. It doesn't mean that you're going to die the death of the wicked. You could actually be Nadav and Avihu and die the death of the righteous. They died doing a commandment. They just died doing it wrong. <laughs> why do we say that they shouldn't have they shouldn't have survived this walk? Well, the reason they shouldn't have survived it is because of the intense holiness that sandwiched them in. Exodus 13, 17 through 22. Uh, and I'll just kind of summarize here. It says, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. All right. So right there, we see that <clears throat> he was leading them. Adonai himself was leading them. As you drop down a few verses, it says, the Lord was going, that's Yodhe the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. All right, so was Yodhe in this cloud? Apparently, he was. How was he in that cloud? Well, the, the cloud concealed the glory. They can't look directly on his glory. It'll kill them. Remember, it's intense holiness, intense holiness. But remember something that is later said of the angel of the presence that's, that's going to lead them in the cloud when he says, I'm not going to go, but I'm going to send the angel. He says, my name is in him. yod heh that authority is in him. So whoever this is in the pillar of cloud as well as the presence leading them, there is also some other presence there. And that presence has the name yod heh vav -Heh placed within him. Right? So Adonai himself goes before them, intense holiness. But then when they get to the Reed Sea, it's, you know, the people start crying out. And Adonai says, tell the sons of Israel to go forward. He says, okay, Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it. The sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And he says what he's going to do to Pharaoh and the chariots. As you go on, it says the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus one did not come near the other all night. And you think, well, that was the, the chariots didn't come near the children of Israel. Possibly. But as you were reading, you know, grammatically about how the, the angel of Adonai splits off, and so does the pillar of cloud and moves behind them. 
So the idea here is the presence of Adonai is going before them, but this angel of his presence also inhabiting a pillar of cloud moves and goes behind them. And then later, Yotebape, he sends them on with this angel of the presence in the pillar of cloud and says, my name is in him and he will not forgive your sin. If you mess up, you better be careful. And we, by this, we know that Yeshua has the power to forgive sin because he was given that authority. That name is in him. So we get this picture of intense holiness, creating a holiness sandwich. We've got the presence of Adonai leading before. We've got the angel of the presence, which I believe was a manifestation of Yeshua behind guarding them from the chariots of Pharaoh. And I think that we have a clue as to who this angel was. You know, where it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept the sea back. The Lord, yod swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. So Moses is out there in front of us, and apparently so is yod They're both, as Moses is stretching out his hand, yod is also doing something. He's manipulating the east wind and turning the sea into dry land, just like he did on the third day of creation. So we read in Proverbs 30, verse 4, who has ascended into heaven and descended? See, if the presence is there before them, it has to have descended from the heavenlies. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. So right there in the Proverbs, it's carrying us back to the Reed Sea where the presence descends and Adonai himself gathers the wind in his fists and he wraps the waters in his garments. And then he says, what is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. So I think the, the, the clue here is that yes, yod went before the children of Israel, but his son, this manifestation of his presence, this cloud of glory split off and went behind. And so between all that holiness, shouldn't they have perished? Well, let's listen to Matthew 8, 24 through 27. And this takes place in the Galilee. Okay, you hear gal, which means rolling, similar to gilad. Remember the goats coming down from Mount Gilad? Galilee. And Galilee, it means, it's. it used to be called Galilee of the Nations. So there's a witness in Galilee to the nations. So here's what it says. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being covered with the waves. But Yeshua himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us. Probably Hoshiana. <laughs> he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, I think the kind of man Yeshua was, remember the name that was in him. It's, it's the same thing, just as Adonai takes the wind in his fist and he wraps the sea around him like a garment. In other words, he controls every aspect of the wind and the sea. Yeshua stands up and he rebukes them and became perfectly calm. The name is in him. And this is just so typical of us. We don't know when we're in a holiness sandwich sometimes. We don't know when that spiritual authority is so close to us. Sometimes we don't know the holiness and the authority that is within us. It's just not yet been brought to fruition and perfection. And as long as we keep claiming 
that grace is enough, I don't really have to keep any commandments, then I think we'll continue to be ignorant of the holiness and the authority that can grow within us. Because the same name that was put into Yeshua, that same name has been placed upon us. Yeshua has given us his authority just as the Father gave him his authority. But the the prophecy here of the washed sheep says that, you know what, the footsteps of Messiah, they are walking with us on these mountains of the peoples. They are walking with us through the seas of the peoples. We will not drown and we will not burn. He's going to hold us. He's going to uphold us. He's what does the scripture say? He's able to make us stand. So, yes, even though, even though. Sometimes we feel inadequate because we don't feel like we know all the commandments. We haven't had time to learn all the commandments, so we don't know the nuances of all the commandments. Don't worry. Don't worry. Walk in the righteousness you know. Walk in what is revealed to you today. You've got credit in your account for the things you haven't had the opportunity to walk in yet. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.